Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, November the 4th, 2022. Uh, too much on 2022. We Americans tend to focus too much on the present. We're going back. 70 years, back to 1952, to one of the great movies in the American tradition, High Noon, um, starring, of course, Gary Cooper, about a man who was too proud to run. And um, we have a new, if you like, a retrospective, a rethinking, um, a reevaluation of High Noon in movie form by my guest today, John Mulholland, a very distinguished American thinker, writer, artist, documentarian. He has a, a new movie out that's going to be featured on PBS called Inside High Noon. And he's joining us from his home in New York City. John, why the need to revisit High Noon 70 years after it was made? Thank you for having me, Andy. Uh, I think that given what is happening today in America, and at least from my political perspective, that a lack of uh, civic complacency makes high noon extraordinarily relevant, timely, because behind the blacklist aspect of high noon, behind the suspense western of high noon, High Noon is really about civic complacency. What happens to a community that refuses to stand up for its own strengths? Uh, uh, democracy is so fragile. It, 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 it's words on paper unless a community stands up and defends those words. And High Noon is about a community that refuses to stand up and defend the words and what happens. So, 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 John, not everyone, of course, is as familiar with the movie as you are. You've made a film about a film. Remind us about the plot and its significance in terms of today. What's the plot of High Noon? The, the plot and basic is that a small town marshal on his wedding day learns that a man whom he sent up to prison five years ago and should have spent the rest of his life in jail has been released and is coming back on the noon train. Three of his old gang are at the station waiting for him. The marshal leaves town originally with his new wife, his bride, but realizes that he has to go back, that if he doesn't go back, if he doesn't defend democracy, then the town will die. He assumes that his allies, his former deputies will join him and little will happen. However, it turns out that in fact, no one will help him. His old deputies refuse, the judge leaves town, his new deputy leaves says, no, I'm not going to help you. 
and the townspeople themselves, for various selfish reasons, refuse to help him. And he has to stand there and face the four men alone. He is afraid. He knows that, in fact, in a few minutes as noon approaches, he probably will die. But rather than leave, he stands up for democracy. He ends up, well, it's not important what he ends up doing. Is it really, though, him standing up for democracy itself? I mean, obviously, democracy is very much in the news with the midterms coming up next week. A lot of people fear that democracy is in crisis in America. But is in high, in high noon itself, is Gary, um, is Gary Cooper really defending democracy or independence or freedom? Are they all the same things? Uh, it, it's interesting that Cooper, his Will Kane character he plays, is unable to put into words why he's staying. He keeps saying, I don't know, I don't know. But there's an interesting scene between him and his former lover, a woman named Helen Ramirez, in which she says, if you're smart, you'll get out of town too. And he says, I can't. And she says, I know. The two of them understand that if he leaves town, the town is dead. This man will take over with his thugs and run rampant that they'll make the laws destroy the laws yes i think that his character is standing up for democracy john um you're a very distinguished filmmaker you've made um made many movies many documentaries you've even uh written four graphic novels um tell me about your own intimacy with this movie. Do you remember when you first saw it? And why does it mean so much for you beyond the politics? Does that have a personal ref relevance? Uh, you know, I saw it when I was very young. And I remember being struck by, it was the first time I think I had seen a man on screen break down and cry. He puts his head down on the desk, the marshal, and you can hear the sniffles, but you know he's crying. And he's crying not because he's lost a loved one, a, a, a family member, a child. He's crying because he's afraid and he knows he's going to die. And I found that extraordinary because masculinity, American masculinity, that, that's not something that is particularly prominent on the screen in Hollywood movies. And I was just struck by it. I, I didn't even know what to think about it. I just thought, this is, this is something different. And as I got older and began to appreciate some of the layers within the film itself about masculinity and that I did not understand at the beginning, but its treatment of, of the female, of femininity, was something completely different than right. And Grace Kelly is looking very Grace Kelly-ish in this film as you know one of the great beauties in, in, in the Hollywood tradition. 
Yeah, there's an interesting line that's in the original script that Fred Zimmerman cut out of the uh, finished cut. And it's, she's talking to Helen Ramirez, the uh, other main female character. And she's talking about, she says, I'm a feminist, you know, women's rights and that sort of thing. And that that is amazing that in a Western in 1951, 52, that there would be that line or that there would be a female character representing that sort of vision. And, and uh, it just, the movie kept more and more capturing me each time I'd see it. Till now, it is like Bill Clinton and so many others, probably my favorite movie film. John, the the uh, the, the the movie you've made inside uh, High Noon um, is not just about the meaning of the film, but the meaning of the film's making. Tell me about this America of nineteen fifty-two and why, perhaps in some ways, it's not that different from the America of twenty twenty-two. Yeah, uh, there, there was something called the blacklist, uh, uh, very prominent in those post-war years. Right. Driven by McCarthyism. Yes, yes. And uh, uh, the House on american Activities Committee specifically went after artists, creators, writers, directors, actors, uh, many whom they felt were sympathetic to communism that had been members of the Communist Party. And they, they were, uh, they called them before this committee and asked them, were you a member of the Communist Party? Are you a member of the Communist Party? Many would say, yes, I was. And then the committee would ask them for names of others who were, pardon me, by naming other names, they would then be allowed to continue working within Hollywood. And, and shamefully, the big studios and too many went along with this and said, all right, if the committee says you can work, then you can continue working if you've given names. However, if you don't give names, then you are not allowed to work. And the committee worked in perfect seemingly harmony with the big studios. Carl Foreman, the, the screenwriter of High Noon, was called before the committee. He had been a member of the Communist Party, no longer was, but he had been. Yeah. And rather than name names, he said, refused to talk about his background and refused to give names and therefore was blacklisted and refused, uh, not allowed to work in Hollywood anymore, ended up having to move to London. What about Zinnemann, uh, the director? What, what were his politics and was he threatened by McCarthyism and, and the blacklist? Uh, Zinnemann's politics were to the left and had not been a member of the Communist Party. And there's no real record of his being threatened by it, but he refused to kowtow. And in fact, 
during the making of High Noon, when the producer, Stanley Kramer, took Fred Carl Foreman's name off as screenwriter, as the committee told him to do. Fred Zinnemann and Gary Cooper both went to Stanley Kramer, the producer, and said, if his name is gone, then we're walking off the film and you don't have any uh, movie then. And Kramer was flabbergasted, perhaps not so much by Fred Zinnemann, but by Gary Cooper, who was a political conservative and, in fact, had testified in 1947 before the committee as a so-called friendly witness. However, he named no names, named no scripts, and was basically saying he was there to say that Hollywood was not a nest of communists. But Cooper stuck up for Carl Foreman throughout the filming of it, uh, openly championed him, said Foreman's politics were his and his alone, and he's the finest kind of American. And Right, it was mired in controversy from the beginning in terms of the making. Did the critics and the public understand this connection between the film? I mean, it must have been fairly self-evident. It obviously is today. Between the principles that the film was sticking up for, the, the, this, this civic virtue, this defense, this willingness to sacrifice one's life for America or democracy or freedom, whatever you want to call it, and the making of the film and the atmosphere of America in 1952 with McCarthyism and the hysteria over the Reds? Certainly, that was a part of the, re the reaction by some critics, but others never mentioned it. Others ignored it or did not read anything into it. And I'm not sure even though I think that audiences, some of the audience understood the background. I'm not sure it's popularity and it was a hugely popular and hugely influential that it, its popularity was due in any way to audiences coming, oh, uh, I, I wanna see this, this is about the blacklist. This is about the House on American Activities Committee. I, 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 I found no real. I mean, some New York Times critic Bosley Carruther wrote extensively about its response to the blacklist and that, but uh, not many did. Not not many did. I think it only is. In fact, it was years later when. Director Howard Hawks and uh, John Wayne, when they made Rio Bravo and talked about it, another Western, as it being a response to uh, High Noon. But John Wayne was the president of, of an outfit that was uh, heavily involved in getting writers, directors, actors blacklisted. And they went after John Wayne, went after Carl Foreman with a vengeance and was one of those responsible for Foreman being blacklisted and ending up in London. 
And John, how did the movie do um, in the Oscars and the other awards, 52, 53? It was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Screenplay. But it ended up in the major categories, only Gary Cooper winning for Best Actor. Zinnemann lost out to John Ford for The Quiet Man. Uh, the Best Picture ended up the greatest show on earth is this nonsense from uh, Cecil B. DeMille that literally on Oscar night, everyone was stunned. Yeah, it's not the first, certainly not the first or the last time that the, the Oscar committee has made the wrong choice. Are you suggesting, John, that there's a connection between the hysteria over McCarthyism and the blacklist in 1952 and the cultural atmosphere in America today in 2022? Is there a similar red scare, radical scare, maybe over the Black Lives Matter or, or, or critical race studies? Yes, certainly so. It, it, what is happening with the uh, right-wing conservative Republican leaping on something like Black Lives Matter or even more... Uh, ferociously critical race theory and using that as scare tactics is is not unlike what was going on with the blacklist that someone had been a member of the communist party in 1937 or 42 and therefore was dangerous to america and no doubt about it to me the leaping on Black Lives Matter, uh, critical race theory. Uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones is wonderful, remarkable 1619 project. In fact, I even wonder today, there's a movie called Till that's in theaters. Yeah, I'm actually seeing it at the weekend. I, it, it focuses on Emma Till's mother. But it, it's about what happened. And, and I wonder if in Texas, in Florida, in these states that are so have blanketed the study of anything that proposes race back then can now be focused on today because that's making white people feel guilty the neediness of white folks. It's, uh, and I wonder if Till can play in Texas or Florida or some of these other states that are. Mm. Yeah, I'm saying I, I live in the Bay Area and it's it's on all over here. Surprise, surprise. So, John, let's just, I know you've got to go in a couple of minutes. Um, the, the movie is Inside High Noon, uh, director's cut. It, it's out. Um, you can read about it online. Um, it's out already on PBS. Is it? How do people get to see it? Yes, it, it's, it'll be on PBS over the next two months, bouncing around from local to local, and it will be available. It's available in some places for streaming on PBS already, if you're a member of PBS. But you'll be able to tell, unfortunately, by after looking up in your local. Uh, PBS. And even people in Florida and Texas will be able to watch because at the moment, at least, PBS still goes to those states. I wonder. Yeah, we'll have to see. Uh, 
And finally, John, I mean, of course, um, everybody needs to watch the movie High Noon before probably your Inside High Noon. Um, it's important to see the original before yours isn't a remake, but a rethink, perhaps. What other movies or books would you like people to be revisiting in 2022? Well, it isn't that long ago, but I did a documentary on Elmore Leonard. That was yeah, yeah. Good. I haven't seen it, but I'd love to see it, actually. Well, he wrote a novel called Tishomingo Blues in 2006 or seven, And it is typical Elmore Leonard, outright just a riot. But it's really about America and where America is with the racial problem. And it belongs with me with Zadie Smith's On Beauty and Chimamanda Adichie's Americana. It's one of three novels that captures where America is in the 21st century. I, I couldn't recommend it higher. It, it's uh, just brilliant. And, and given where America is with race today, it, it, it would behoove anyone to read it and you'll just be laughing the whole way through. Well, that's excellent advice, John, and we'll need to revisit your documentary on the Leonard book. And one other movie, one other classic that still resonates in addition to High Noon? Boy, uh, I, uh, you know, there's one today called The Banshees of Insurance. By yeah, Mark. I saw that last weekend. We actually, it's interesting. You mentioned masculinity, and I had the American, the contemporary writer Isaac Fitzgerald on the show, and we talked about that film and what it tells us about being male in today's world. Yes, that's about that. Well, then, you know, it's interesting to me when the female character leaves those two men, goes to Dublin, is when violence happens when Colin Farrell's character no longer has her as a sounding board and to monitor him is when he goes and burns the house. It, it, it's, uh, it's a remarkable evocation. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it, but you're absolutely right. Everything breaks down when his sister leaves town. Yes, yeah. Men need this. No, it's uh, Mark McDonough's a treasure. 